Welcome to SocialCast, the weekly podcast talking about enduring societal hurdles in the United States and how socialism offers a way past them. SocialCast. This is Lance. And I'm Derek. And today we're going to talk about why being a millionaire is immoral. Now, I feel like we should qualify this. Being a millionaire in the right kind of economic system, probably not that bad. But being an, an American millionaire under capitalism is pretty heinous. It's, it's pretty objectively evil, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And I think I might even throw the, the qualifier and say that the person who retired with a net worth of $1 million and one cent, they're probably not evil incarnate. They're probably, you know, they probably worked most of their lives. They have probably gotten to where they are through relatively honest means, or at least honest within our framework of the American economy. But the people who are currently in the 21st century America, who are currently millionaires and who are currently earning hundreds upon thousands of dollars a year or millions of dollars a year. Or hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. I'm looking at you, Jeff fucking Bezos. Zuckerberg. Um, sorry, indigestion. Um, but when there are people who are literally actively dying because they cannot afford to see a doctor, and people who are actively dying of hunger because they can't afford food, and people who are dying from exposure to the elements like we just saw a few weeks ago across America with our winter storm, because they can't afford housing, anyone who is hoarding resources beyond their ability to consume in a natural human lifespan is guilty of murder. They are evil because they are willfully choosing to hoard their wealth and to keep that wealth to themselves while other people are literally dying. You I... Oh. Is that I burnt out okay. a little bit. <laughs> cool. Sorry. Leaves. Dog. Um... I'll just have to edit this whole chunk of space out. Mostly that. The reality is that 
under capitalism in America today, there are a few hundred people that have the capacity to solve all of our crises. They can solve our housing crisis. They can solve our food insecurity crisis. They can solve our healthcare crisis. They can solve our energy generation and supply crisis. They can solve all of our problems, but they actively choose not to. They are willfully depriving other people of the resources necessary to come out of these crises because they are choosing not to. I, I can't understand the rationale of saying, I'm going to keep this money that I am not even spending. Like, if you're spending that money and you're buying these lavish homes and you're buying these boats and you're living this extravagant lifestyle, okay, like, I, it's not moral, but I get it. And you're putting that money back into an economy, so it's not the worst thing in the world. But it's the people who just have this inordinate amount of wealth just in existence. And it's like, why are you holding on to this when you're never going to spend it, when you're never going to have the ability to spend it even? When there's so much else it could be doing, there's research into medicine and into cures for disease that you could put that money there's so let's actually pause there and talk about that for a second because i feel like a lot of people don't understand the way medical research works they think that researchers are just given all of the money that they need at the very beginning of their study and then if they don't make progress magic happens and they still get money and that's that's just not true it's just not true what happens is that researchers come up on their own with an idea of what they want to research or what kind of medication they want to develop and over time they are responsible for fundraising most of most of the money Over time, they're responsible for fundraising most of the money that supports their research and their development of medications and vaccinations. And we have seen in the last year a perfect example of what happens when those medical researchers or scientific researchers have the funds that they need from the get-go. Because we watched the development of a vaccine to a brand new disease from start to finish, nine months. And not just a new vaccine, but also a type of vaccine that we have not used before and that we did not really think... There there was research into mRNA vaccines before COVID, but it wasn't... It was very theoretical and it was very out there. And it was kind of talked about here and there, but it was not a, a targeted, I think we can cure this if we use an mRNA vaccine. When COVID hit, all this money and all these resources got put into the work of finding a vaccine for this particular disease. And mRNA became 
the front runner competitor in this research and that's where we ended up absolutely in the normal course of events i would say researchers spend upwards of 75 percent of their time doing nothing but fundraising and if you're a researcher and you're working 40 hours a week and you're spending 30 of those hours trying to find people to fund your research and and your development of technologies for whatever you're working on, of course it's going to take forever to get shit done. I, I, I look at the job I have now and I think if I had to spend 30 hours of the 40 hours of the week that I work just asking for the money necessary to to live even i wouldn't i i wouldn't be able to get work done nobody i just no and that's that's the the backbone of this conversation because when we're talking about why being a millionaire or even a billionaire especially a billionaire in america today is immoral it's because those people who are holding on to these giant pools of resources are depriving other people that are trying to do actual good with their time. That's the episode. Yep. Join us next week. <laughs> no, that's not the episode. It's not going to be a 10 minute long episode. It's not even 10 minute long yet, is it? Um... Eight minutes and 43 seconds. I think going back to, you know, talking about where where's the specific cutoff of what dollar amount makes someone evil is one thing I, I hear a lot when we talk about universal health care and universal housing and universal utilities, etc. is, you know, with health care, it's, oh, well, are you saying that nurses and doctors don't deserve to be making the money that they're making because you know, the jobs that they have to do. And well, no, absolutely. These doctors who go to eight, 10, 12 years of school, sometimes more to learn these extraordinarily complicated procedures and methods of treatment, and that they have to deal with all this trauma and emotional and physical labor every day, they absolutely deserve to make a comfortable living as a means of coming away from all of that intensity and it should be burger flippers making just as much money as neurosurgeons well no obviously that's not the case but just because someone's flipping burgers doesn't mean that they don't deserve to live what that means is that people who are making what we want burger flippers to make that are upset that burger flippers are going to make as much as them instead of attacking the burger flippers Maybe attack your employer and say, why aren't you paying me what I am worth? Why aren't you paying me the amount of money that my time is worth? If you look at the money and you look at the time and you see where minimum wage started, and if you account for inflation, it's really at about uh, $31 or so. 31 and some change. I don't make that. I'm not going to go over specific numbers, but I don't make that. I honestly don't know anyone who does, who aren't highly skilled professionals in very intense um, fields of labor. But if I were to be making that, that's not to say that you know everyone who makes a little bit more than me, but still less than that, shouldn't be making proportionally still more. It's 
we need to talk about what me or what it takes to live in our current state and compensating people based on the intensity and the emotional labor and the physical labor involved in a job that a meets their basic needs and provides the means of resting from that work that i think is the most important component for me is that when when we don't pay people an appreciable wage for the work that they're doing they don't have the capacity to disengage from that work in a way that is refreshing to themselves and that is this is me speaking as someone who has suffered through some some pretty intense feelings of depression and anxiety because of PTSD I developed largely from working in retail and working 40 hours a week even as even as a manager like the the most I was making for the the bookstore that I was working at was $16 an hour dollar more than what we want the minimum wage to be and that was after 20 years of retail management experience. Why, after 20 years of retail management experience, is my time only worth $16 to people who are getting paid to sit in an office on the other side of the country and make decisions? Like, they're, they're not even great decisions. I, I worked for Barnes & Noble, and during the time that I was there... They rotated through four CEOs, and each one that left, left with a ridiculously generous uh, compensation package, severance package, whatever, while our stores were hemorrhaging money through labor that we weren't supposed to be spending because the expectations for what we were going to be able to do were completely unrealistic. And this is the problem. These people at, at... the, the C-suite level people that are making decisions for so many millions of workers don't understand because they don't make that same wage. And so when they hear that we're fighting for a $15 minimum wage and they see that it's twice what the minimum wage is right now, what they think is it's going to affect their pocketbook. It's going to affect how much money they're taking home. Okay, but... Mr. CEO at Barnes & Noble, your compensation package last year was $300,000. That is more money than anybody can do much with in a year because you're still working your 40 hours a week. You might have vacation time, but if you're spending $300,000 a year because you're making $300,000 a year, that's ridiculous. Like, unless you're taking all of that money and investing it into parts of your community that are underserved or underfunded, you're making bad choices with that money. You don't deserve to have that. You know who does, though? The people that are doing the jobs that are generating the wealth that you're hoarding. I see this especially pronounced in the industry I work in, in healthcare, where usually, in most cases you do have leadership that has worked the frontline jobs. You do see leadership who are nurses and who are doctors and who have worked in healthcare, but they are so far removed 
from actual care and interaction with the patient population that they don't know what the reality of the front lines is anymore. And so they set these expectations and they set these models in place that are completely unrealistic and unfounded in any sense of reality. And they're walking away from this fantasy world with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in salary and bonuses. And you wonder how how did we get to a point where you don't your work doesn't even really matter it matters in the sense of how many people it affects but like you said with barnes and noble they cycled through four ceos in how long five years five years that's absurd that's absolutely absurd and each one went away with a severance package yep and each one made sequentially worse and worse decisions for the company. If, if I were to go through four jobs in five years, that's considered inconsistent and unreliable in the modern, modern job market, really. Absolutely. And that's going to create a negative taste in a company's mouth when they're looking at hiring me. But this is the reality. Of, of work in America. These people that make the decisions make all the money and the people that do all the work make very little. And this is where we could talk about Amazon or Walmart and we could talk about the fact that 60% of Walmart's employees are on SNAP benefits or housing subsidies and that that's just part of Walmart's business model. Meanwhile, the Waltons each individually, the Walton children, are worth more than $300 million each. They are some of the richest people in America. They have an outsized um, impact on labor law and labor relations across the country because Walmart is everywhere. And these, these folks that are making all of this money and these folks that are creating that wealth the people that are actually doing the work that are working 40 hours a week for that minimum wage and relying on SNAP benefits and housing subsidies to get by those people are not being helped those people are being left behind in the economic system that we currently operate in especially against the backdrop of the pandemic over the course of the last year we should we should have a, a wider audience for any conversation about wealth inequality in America because what we have seen in in somebody like Jeff Bezos is we've watched him double and triple his net worth 
while hundreds of millions of people are are losing their jobs, are depending on unemployment subsidies, are applying for SNAP benefits, haven't been able to pay their rent, and are now getting evicted because eviction moratoriums across the country have have timed out, and there's there's no relief in sight. Yeah, we got a $1,200 stimulus check and a $600 stimulus check, and we're supposed to get a $1,400 stimulus check, but that's $3,200 for a year? For a year. That's one-eighth of the poverty line? About that, yeah. And we we see folks every day online, we see folks talking about reopen the country because mom and pop shops are going out of business and independent restaurants are going out of business and nobody can afford to do anything. But the reality is that in a time like this especially, it is the government's function to step in and provide that that safety net. And when... Was it Eisenhower that started Social Security? Roosevelt. When Roosevelt started the Social Security system at the end of World War II, no, after the Great Depression. Yep. It was part of the New Deal. It was part of the New Deal legislation. So when when he enacted the the social security system it was specifically to provide a safety net for citizens that weren't able to function in the workplace who were too old or too infirm or too disabled to to work to still have a means to live and all we're suggesting when we we talk about government safety nets is an expansion of that program for specific instances like this where there are tens of millions of americans tens of millions of americans uh, that are are without money they lost their job through no fault of their own and you could build a really strong argument that it is in fact the government's fault that they lost their job because for the first nine months of the pandemic, it was handled so poorly. I I don't want this episode to turn into a how badly we handled COVID episode, but it's just such a perfect juxtaposition for why hoarding resources is inherently evil. Because A, how is it that at the same time that millions of people are losing jobs and millions of people are losing their incomes these ceos like the waltons and like jeff bezos make more money how did that happen how did how is it we have an economic system and a government that could allow all this wealth to literally move from this lower segment of the population directly up to the top one per- not even the top one percent that'd be one thing this is the top point zero zero one percent this is the infinitesimal small group of 50 people and it's really important to talk about the fact that over the last 60 years we have seen the concentration of wealth change dramatically in america in the 1960s roughly 40 percent of the American population was, for, for lack of a better term, lower class in terms of the amount of money that they made. 
the middle class comprised about 50% of the population and the upper class, the, the wealthy people and the super wealthy people comprised 10% of the population. And over the course of the last 60 years, we've seen that concentration of wealth change so that the upper class is about 15%, the middle class is about 10 and 75% of the country is lower class in terms of how much money they're making. And we've literally watched the middle class disappear due to these kinds of, of economic policies that encourage low wages, low tax payouts, and don't provide any sort of meaningful intervention to make sure that people are surviving the way that they're supposed to. And it's be, it, to build on that, it's there's no incentive to be part of the middle class. If you're in the lower class, if you're on that lower income side, you might be eligible for SNAP benefits. You might be eligible for Medicaid. You might be eligible for housing. You are eligible for a way to have your needs met. If you are on the far end of that bracket and you're making millions of dollars, you don't have to worry about anything. Everything is available to you. You can live in luxurious housing. You can access the absolute best of healthcare. You can eat the finest foods consistently. There's no incentive to be part of the middle class. You're not eligible for government health programs, but you're also not able to lead a life of luxury or anything above basic comfort, really. I recall a recent discussion you and I had where the idea of that week-long family vacation is a myth anymore. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a child, like, we, we went to Disneyland. That took about a week because we drove. And I remember going to Germany and going to Europe as a child, and then we just stopped. And I recognize even as a child in the 90s, like, that was... A point of luxury for us but that stopped and I know a lot of people today aren't experiencing that we don't get vacations if we do I mean not you know COVID notwithstanding and all if we do get a vacation we might drive stay at the coast for a weekend we might do a small road trip but we're not going to Paris for the week we're not you know going on safari in Africa we're not going to India we're not having the big vacations that we used to do and we're not having these big trips that we used to go on well and as as i pointed out in that conversation your family was kind of an exception absolutely my family never went on any kind of those vacations no because the the progress that we were or the i don't like to call it progress but the change that we were experiencing towards where we are today was already happening not, not just in the 90s, but as far back as the 50s and 60s, where we saw business become so unregulated and so laissez-faire. I think it is important to point out that while there was an, a, a certain amount of that that we experienced during the 50s and 60s and 70s, shit really hit a fever pitch when Reagan took office in 81. Reagan is single-handedly responsible for changing the the entire economic direction of the country because he implemented the idea of trickle-down economics which we now know 40 years later was a lie 
trickle down economics is is not a thing that's ever going to work when when you concentrate resources in the hands of of a small group of people that small group of people looks at everyone else and says we don't want them to be like us so we're going to hold on to this and we're going to issue them a pittance and and if they can't survive well we're going to tell them that they should manage their money better if something happens to the economy and all of a sudden they can't pay their rent, we're gonna say, okay, well, you should have had six months worth of savings specifically for things like this. And we've, I'm 40 years old. I've lived through at least three once in a lifetime crises that have upset the entire economic system of the world. And what I have walked away from that with is none of this is working. Absolutely none of it is working, and it hasn't been working for a very long time. Capitalism cannot be an ongoing system of economics. It is a targeted process to reach an end goal, and that is absolute division of the classes and hoarding of resources at the absolute top, while the overwhelming bulk of the masses sit below producing labor and producing the resources that you're hoarding while they are subsisting on scraps and barely making ends meet in hovels of shelter. And this is such a universal theme that it's reflected back to us in all of our media. If you look at books and movies like The Hunger Games or what's another one? You see it almost in every form of media. You see it Maybe not as blatantly, but you see it in Star Wars. You see it in Star Trek. In multiple iterations, you see it in Star Trek. In multiple civilizations that they've created, you see it um, in Harry Potter. And as much as I hate to bring up Harry Potter because there's so many problematic parts to it, um, but you see it in virtually every young adult novel of the last 20 years you see this story of the corrupt government and the corrupt top percentage group hoarding and controlling more and more resources at the harm and detriment of the people below them. And, and the, manipulating the people below them into thinking that this is not only the way that it it's supposed to be, but that they should be happy for it. I... I cling to the Hunger Games for this example because it's the most striking and I feel one of the more accessible forms of entertainment where we see this dichotomy reflected back to us where there is absolutely no question that the people in the capital are are living their best life. The lavender hair. Why every single fantasy world it's always when the old people have pastel hair you know they're the bad ones right but also they they hold this yearly competition that is a fight to the literal death and the winner gets food for their housing district this is this this is the end point of capitalism if we don't provide some kind of intervention if we don't stop this train and there there are parts of this this kind of socialistic approach to eliminating income inequality and 
eliminating wealth inequality and making sure that everybody has their basic needs met that people look at and they're like okay well why should we pay off college tuition that's not fair to the people that have already paid it and to me this is a really awful example but that would be like me being alive when lincoln was trying to end slavery and someone coming up to me as an abolitionist and saying, why should we let these black people be free? That's not fair to all the ones that died as slaves. That sounds fucking awful. That's just that I but can't even wrap my mind around that. It is exactly the same. It is, it is the exact same mm -hmm. argument. Why should we allow the people who are suffering under this system that you want to get rid of to not suffer when so many people before them suffered under it? And and to me, the reason we should is because of the people who died, because of the failures of the system. They are, they are the reason, I'm just about to repeat myself, but they are the evidence of how it is not working. If anything, those, those people should be the people that we are fighting to dismantle these systems for to make sure that no one else has to suffer that way again. I mean, that is that is personally my goal. I grew up in a single parent household in a family that was affected by by substance abuse disorder. We were impoverished. We had very low food security. We moved around a lot because my mom wasn't always able to make rent payments because she was a single mom and she she did her best but sometimes we just got behind and we had to move on to something else and i fight to make sure that nobody has to grow up in those circumstances because that has really negative impacts on children for their entire lives and if i can do something that makes it so that those kids don't have to suffer the way i did and the way that i have and the way that i still am to this day at 40 years old i'm going to fight like hell to make sure that they don't have to and i think that's the end of the episode <laughs> <laughs> that like that be. really is what it comes down to thank you for joining us for this week's social cast Social Cast publishes a new episode every Sunday, so make sure to add us to your podcast library to be notified of new content. Social Cast is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Join the conversation with us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Social Cast Podcast and on Twitter at Social Cast Pod. If you're interested in supporting Social Cast, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash socialcast.